This evening's talk is a review of Anapanasati, core practice of Buddhism, all the different schools of Buddhism, uh, mindfulness of breathing. Uh, the word sati translates as mindfulness. Uh, we could also consider it as non-judgmental present moment awareness. Mindfulness operates in the same way as a camera. Camera is a mechanical device that is sensitive to light, and light comes through an aperture and stimulates a computer chip these days, used to be film, and leaves an imprint. But there's no judgment, no evaluation, it's just simply, this is what is. That's the characteristic of mindfulness. Anapana uh, basically means breathing in and breathing out. Um, the Anapanasati Sutta is one of the core teachings of Theravada Buddhism, and it organizes a progressive development of 16 contemplations. Sometimes they're presented as four tetrads uh, of four different contemplations. So I'm going to read off the 16 contemplations. I'm not going to really review them tonight. I may do that next week. I, I'm still not clear about that. But here are the uh, contemplations. Breathing in long, he discerns, I'm breathing in long. Or breathing out long, he discerns, I'm breathing out long. Breathing in short, he discerns I'm breathing in short, or breathing out short, he discerns I'm breathing out short. He trains himself, I will breathe in, sensitive to the entire body. He trains himself, I will breathe out, sensitive to the entire body. He trains himself, I will breathe in calming, bodily fabrication. He trains himself, I will breathe out, calming, bodily fabrication. He trains himself, I will breathe in, sensitive to rapture. He trains himself, I will breathe out, sensitive to rapture. He trains himself, I will breathe in, sensitive to pleasure. He trains himself, I will breathe out, sensitive to pleasure. He trains himself, I will breathe in, sensitive to mental fabrication. He trains himself, I will breathe out, sensitive to mental fabrication. He trains himself, I will breathe in, calming mental fabrication. He trains himself, I will breathe out, calming mental fabrication. He trains himself, I will breathe in, sensitive to the mind. He trains himself, I will breathe out, sensitive to the mind. He trains himself, I will breathe in, satisfying the mind. He trains himself, I will breathe out, satisfying the mind. He trains himself, I will breathe in, steadying the mind. He trains himself, I will breathe out, steadying the mind. He trains himself, I will breathe in, releasing the mind. He trains himself, I will breathe out, releasing the mind. He trains himself, I will breathe in, focusing on inconstancy. He trains himself, I will breathe out, focusing on inconstancy. He trains himself, I will breathe in, focusing on dispassion, fading. 
He trains himself, I will breathe out, focusing on dispassion, fading. He trains himself, I will breathe in, focusing on cessation. He trains himself, I will breathe out, focusing on cessation. He trains himself, I will breathe in, focusing on relinquishment. He trains himself, I will breathe out, focusing on relinquishment. Now, um, um, the um, progression there, as I said a few minutes ago, uh, is more um, elaborate than that simple reading. There are specific meanings associated with each of the seven, six, uh, 16 rather, contemplations. Um, the more I'm talking about, the more I'm thinking that's what I want to review uh, next week, those uh, contemplations. This practice, as I mentioned, is a core teaching of, of uh, Theravada Buddhism. It's also in the Mahayana tradition, a slightly different rendering. Uh, what it's meant to do is use the kind of attention, the, the quality of the mind that's associated with the simple act of paying attention to the sensation of breathing. Using that as a stabilizing point of reference, a resource of stability and, and continuity. The investigation of the sensations can train the mind to be more and more um, sensitized to more and more subtle functions of the mind. Uh, first of all, calming the, the, uh, the body, which is something I alluded to in the guided meditation that preceded this talk, which will be posted um, in the archived on the website, along with the notes for this talk and the recording for this talk as well. Uh, so that calming of the body creates the platform, if you will, for calming the mind. What calming the mind means is that there's less and less um, interest, attachment to internal narratives, internal commentary. That's the part about the fading, this passion. So as this thought process becomes less and less predominant, the mind becomes more quiet. Um, and we begin to notice more and more subtle characteristics of attention. And that leads to cessation and relinquishment. Now I'm going to talk about this more specifically, as I mentioned um, a few minutes ago, in next week's talk. But I just wanted to lay that out there. Um, so you're not left hanging with it. So what are the advantages of breath as a um, resource 
for this practice. So I'm going to read off some points that I have understood over the years. It's always available because we, we're always breathing. Although, interestingly enough, when you start to integrate mindfulness of breathing into your daily routine, you might notice how often you actually stop breathing for one reason or another. Momentarily. But you actually stop breathing. But generally speaking, it's something we do all our lives. It's one of the very few functions of the body that is both voluntary and involuntary. What I mean by that is that um, you can change the pattern of your breathing. People do that all the time. Singing, chanting, playing a musical instrument, dancing, all kinds of, of uh, ways that we change the pattern of breathing. But we also change it while we're practicing mindfulness of breathing meditation. You might notice Sometimes when you're practicing, when the breath sensations sort of become like a pumping operation. It's not particularly dramatic, but it's certainly not your normal breathing. And that's okay. It's just what's going on in the mind. But there's this, a kind of intentional quality to that that's, that's um, part of your, your practice. However, there comes a time in your practice when your mind is not quite so engaged in managing the rhythm of breathing. Breathing becomes slower and softer and sometimes seems to be unnoticeable. It's still there. It's not uncommon for people on retreat to become alarmed because it seemed like they're not breathing anymore. If you look closer, you'll realize that the breathing process is going on, but it's very subtle. And it's not particularly noticeable in the uh, area around the nostrils. But it's there. It just means that, that the, the process of cultivating samadhi pasadi, samadhi is stability of attention and pasadi is tranquility in the mind, um, has become more and more predominant. Uh, it's also autonomic in the context of if you hold your breath to the point of passing out, guess what? As soon as you're unconscious, you'll start breathing again. So that kind of interaction between what we would call conscious and unconscious functions of the mind and body, I think is also important uh, aspect of breathing. The affective tone of breathing is neutral. It's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So if you want to pay attention to the sensation of breathing, because it has a neutral feeling tone, neutral affective tone, you have to decide to pay attention to it. It's a conscious decision that you have to repeat over and over again until it becomes routinized. And it will with practice. And um, the importance of that, there's multiple uh, benefits that come from that. First of all, whenever our uh, bodies are excited, and I 
mentioned this in passing during the guided meditation uh, preceded this talk as well. But whenever the body is excited, either through some kind of pleasant stimulation or unpleasant stimulation, um, metabolic changes occur. The one that we're most familiar with is adrenaline. Let's just say that there's a jolt of adrenaline that's injected into the bloodstream. It goes all around the body, changes your heartbeat, muscle tension, um, the mind gets more agitated, so forth and so on. When you're paying attention to the breath, there's no longer an adrenaline feed going into your bloodstream. So all of that excitement metabolizes out. Uh, an, an analogy that I use, a simile that I use often is, you know, uh, when we get excited, it's like throwing fuel on a fire, throwing a stick of wood on a fire. It doesn't go poof and you know, burn up. It takes a while. So when you inject adrenaline into your bloodstream, it stays with you a while. But when you stop injecting the adrenaline, after a time, things settle down. And one of the things I mentioned in the meditation is that one of the characteristics of um, a successful meditation training is your body is very relaxed. You can still have an erect posture, but it's a very stable, relaxed posture. There's no tension in the face, the neck, shoulders, um, the hands, um, legs. It's just very relaxed physically and very calm emotionally. And yet, because you've made the commitment, the conscious decision to investigate the breath routinely, persistent way, kind of let your attention soak into the sensation of breathing, your mind remains alert. So that's a really useful combination. Physical relaxation, emotional calmness, combined with mental alertness. That's sort of the optimal mode of this practice. Um, now, when this kind of calmness and stability is streaming, disruptions will be more noticeable. There's a, a great simile that's uh, referred to uh, Ajahn Chah, a famous Thai meditation master from back in the 20th century. Uh, he said that cultivating Anapanasati is like sitting beside a still forest pool. If you stay there long enough and you're quiet enough, all kinds of strange and wonderful creatures will come to drink there. Strange and wonderful creatures are fabrications in the mind. You remember part of the uh, 16 steps of the Anapanasati Sutta is uh, calming of mental fabrications. So what that means is it's like the surface of a pond that is unruffled. There's no wind blowing over it. Um, it's just very stable, like a mirror. So if anything drops into there, no matter how minute it is, it could be a leaf, it could be a creature dipping its nose into the water to drink, there will be a ripple. And there will be an epicenter 
where the ripple originates. So you'll be able to notice more acutely and sooner the origination of the ripples. And we just recently completed a uh, one-week retreat at uh, San Pedro Spiritual Development Center, which is near my home. And it's on um, um, Lake Howell. And I did a self-retreat there probably 20 years or so ago in a cabin down by the lake. And I took a chair and went down and sat on a dock that has a sheet metal roof at the time. The dock is there. Actually, it's a new dock. It's no longer a sheet metal roof. But I sat there for hours one afternoon during a rainstorm. And it was fascinating to pay attention to the staccato sound of raindrops hitting the roof and the interactions of ripples when um, the drops hit the surface of the water. Because it wasn't a windy day. The surface of the lake was very still, but the raindrops created this really interesting, intricate pattern. And I already knew about Ajahn Chah's simile before that retreat, so I paid attention to that. My mind was very still. I was practicing mindfulness of breathing meditation, but I was watching how those drops would impact the water and the ripples would interact with each other. So um, that's very, very useful um, benefit from um, cultivating mindfulness breathing. That when the mind does shift to another focus of attention, and of course it will, it's a basic function of the brain is to be alert for novelty. Uh, when that shift occurs, you'll notice it sooner and your noticing of it will not be complicated by other noise going on in the mind. So uh, that's a useful aspect of quieting the mind is that you notice when um, mental fabrications start to form sooner rather than later and they don't have as much potency. So all of these functions occur because the practice, the discipline associated with mindfulness of breathing um, changes the structure of the brain. Now, those of you who know me know that I'm very interested in how contemporary psychology, particularly neuroscience, neuropsychology, has been applied to mindfulness of breathing meditation and loving-kindness meditation, and even compassion meditation in the Buddhist tradition and in other um, contemplative uh, trainings, different religions. Um, how does that change the structure of the brain? So we've got some pretty sophisticated technology now that can really investigate how this happens. Um, so... The way these researchers operate is like any kind of psychological research um, or even medical research. You have a control group, people who just are willing to show up and in this case go through brain scans. There's a 
device called a functional MRI, magnetic resonance imaging is what MRI stands for. Functional basically means it's, it's creating an ongoing analysis, computer-driven analysis. It's not just one picture, <clears throat> but it's like watching a video of how the uh, flow of blood through the brain is uh, changing. And when the blood is flowing through the brain, uh, that means that particular neurons are calling out for fuel. And the fuel uh, travels through the blood, uh, glucose and oxygen, to these neural pathways. And so they become illuminated. And so that way you know, oh, when you are doing this particular cognitive task or you're experiencing this kind of emotion, this part of the brain lights up. That's a very powerful uh, research thing. But control group um, goes into the MRI. They're given these tasks and they see what the brain does. Then there's a, um, a study group that's given just kind of relaxation exercise or focusing exercise that's generalized. Put them in the MRI. And then they put people in the MRI in two different ways. One of them could be people who are naive practitioners. In other words, they're willing to be trained for a couple of weeks and be tested at the beginning of the training and then tested at the end of the training to see anything, have anything has changed in the structure of the brain. An alternative would be highly trained uh, meditators would uh, be put into the MRI, functional MRI, and um, be given a task in a kind of a resting state and then be given a task when they're actively practicing mindfulness of breathing meditation and notice what happens in the brain. So that's the way that uh, training is set up. Now, the other thing that's important to understand about this is a term called long-term potentiation. What that means is that there are uh, clusters of neurons that's going on in the brain all the time, 24-7, characteristic, basic characteristic of any brain, including brains that are not human. But in the context of our brains, um, long-term potentiation, there are clusters of neurons that are firing synchronously, that is at the same frequency, number of times per second, and amplitude, the strength of that neural firing. So these patterns are established that, and they're enduring. And the, when different areas of the brain are active, they um, activate different functions in the body and, I'll be talk, and in, the, in the brain. I'll be talking about that more specifically in a couple of minutes. Um, so when you are practicing mindfulness of breathing, that's called a state. So there's a state of mindfulness that's associated with investigating the in and out breath. Now, when that quality of investigation in the mind, not necessarily related to the sensation of breathing, but the ability to bring attention to a focus 
on a particular phenomena, either a physical sensation or some kind of cognitive function. When you're able to do that, incidentally, that's called a state. But when you can do it routinely, sort of like a habit, then it's called a trait. So part of the investigative protocol is determining the difference between state mindfulness and trait mindfulness. And that's what the Anapanasati Sutta, that's what the intention associated with it is. That's the teaching, is to develop what's called trait mindfulness. So let me be clear about that. Trait mindfulness doesn't mean just that you can be aware of the breath for long periods of time without interruption and you can go through these 16 steps. It also means that your ability to bring attention to focusing on a particular mental process mindfully and to investigate it um, analytically and discipline it in terms of distractibility, in terms of um, letting go of craving and clinging, your ability to do that generally away from the process, formal process of mindfulness of breathing meditation, that's what we call trait mindfulness. And that's really what we're trying to develop uh, with our practice, is trait mindfulness. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about different systems in the brain, and I'm just putting them in there as they occurred to me when I was making the notes, is not particularly a priority or hierarchy of these different systems. And some of you have heard me talk about this many times. I have researched this many times. I've written the notes many times. I still find it interesting to um, study these, the functions of these different areas and contemplate how does that relate to my uh, state mindfulness process and my trait mindfulness process. First one is the amygdala. And first of all, let me, let me say that these first uh, um, areas that I'm talking about are uh, bicameral or, or bihemisphere, excuse me. There's one in the left hemisphere, there's one in the right hemisphere of the brain. First one is the amygdala. It's a funny word. Amygdala is from the Latin that means shaped like um, an almond. So it's a cluster of uh, neural bodies. You know, um, the, the body is, is kind of where the, the core function is, and then there are these extensions out across the brain called uh, axons and dendrites. I'm not going to talk about them any more than just say that when we, I'm talking about the amygdala, it's, it's where the primary cluster of these neurons is found. Um, the amygdala in the right hemisphere predominantly processes fear and sadness. The left hemisphere processes both fear, sadness, and happiness. And it's more directly associated with motivational impulses. We're talking about motivational impulses in a moment. The amygdala sends affective alerting signals to other areas of the brain and this induces stress. Now, stress just means metabolic activity. It's divided into two categories. Distress, which is unpleasant, and eustress, which is pleasant. But stress just simply means 
but that part of your brain, that part of your body is activated. When we are having great fun, um, you know, uh, swimming or dancing or whatever, that's you stress. It's still stress, but we regard it favorably. So um, when the amygdala is overstimulated through distress, it sends a signal to other parts of the brain to generate cortisol. Now, cortisol is a hormone that is crucial for our survival. When we get really amped up because we're frightened, we get surges of energy and they help us to either fight, flee, or freeze. The three reactions to stress, uh, to, you know, imminent threat. So the short-term effect of cortisol is beneficial. However, the long-term effect of cortisol is detrimental to our well-being. It's like having little sand spurs in your uh, bloodstream. It, it uh, eats away at the lining of the arteries and uh, veins. And so, um, short-term cortisol is a good thing. Long-term, it's not a good thing. <clears throat> now, I'm just describing body functions. Later on, I'm going to talk about how mindfulness meditation training um, produces uh, a benefit in terms of the function of the amygdala and these other areas of the brain. Also, when a person is uh, chronically stressed, traumatized even, the amygdala is predisposed to alarm, sort of hypervigilant. Um, and that's because it's very close to, right next to another cluster of uh, neural bodies called the hippocampus. Where hippocampus is translated as shaped like um, a seahorse, which is odd, but that's what they, I mean, it actually kind of looks like that. Um, so, uh, if the amygdala has to deal with emotions, in this case, I will say craving, the hippocampus is associated with how that emotion, that affect, is uh, the meaning making that's associated with it from memory. The identification of the threat or of the, the, uh, you know, the piece of candy, right? Could be, could be something that's delightful. But the mind recognizes that particular object or situation in characteristic ways, but that's mediated by the hippocampus also found in the right and left hemispheres, right next to the amygdala. The right hippocampus seems to be strongly coordinated with the right amygdala and relates the emotional impulse of stimulation to prior emotionally potentiated episodic memory. Left hippocampus associated with the right amygdala also, but its function is more related to associating people, associating episodic memory and language. But perhaps this is why, perhaps this is why in psychotherapy, there's a benefit to being able to use words to describe emotional experience. 
This way, the synchronistic linking process is more accessible to awareness. I, my, I recently retired from a career uh, over 30 years as a psychotherapist, practicing talk therapy, uh, associated with mindfulness training when people were amenable to that. But uh, I know that when someone has a chance to talk to someone who's empathetic and a good listener, um, it helps them to work through and resolve emotionally conflicted memories and feelings. So the amygdala and hippocampus are kind of closely associated. Amygdala associated with, we could say it's associated with craving, hippocampus with clinging. Now this is very much simplified, but I think it, it helps us understand uh, from a Buddhist perspective um, how mindfulness meditation affects our thoughts and our feelings. Next cluster of neurons is called the nucleus accumbens. It's one in each hemisphere no, no days, uh, located just in front of and slightly above the um, amygdala and nucleus accumbens in the area of the brain that's called the striatum. So, uh, in both hemispheres, the function of the nucleus accumbens seems to be oriented towards motivation for reward, either to experience pleasure or to avoid pain. Now, remember I mentioned something about the um, synchronistic activity between the amygdala and various neural pathways? Well, the neural pathway, the striatum and the nucleus accumbens is a strong association. In fact, there's been a great deal of research over the last couple of decades um, about how the nucleus accumbens and the striatum are associated with addictive behaviors. Substance addiction, but also what we call process addiction or behavioral addiction. Um, something that somebody does repeatedly that is rewarding, that is a maladaptive attempt to compensate for something that's going on in the brain that is uncomfortable, stress, uh, distressful, let's say. So um, the nucleus accumbens becomes hyperactivated. I mentioned that the amygdala becomes predisposed to alarm. The nucleus accumbens becomes uh, hair-triggered. It's always on alert and it's never satisfied. Now, one of the things that I did in my career as a psychotherapist is work with people who were in recovery from addictions. Uh, my first round of uh, clients was people who were trying to deal with crack cocaine, which is a very strong uh, addiction uh, process. So, um, nucleus accumbens gets stuck in the on position, basically. Once again, this is laying the ground for it. This is what goes on in the brain that's associated with the first two of the Four Noble Truths. First one is dukkha, stress and confusion, suffering. Second one is the cause of dukkha, which is craving and clinging. So these areas of the brain is basically where craving and clinging originates, how it operates. <clears throat> 
um, and um, are assessing environmental stimuli. Environmental might mean something outside the body. It might be something inside the body, like, I don't know, an aching knee or uh, some other kind of physical discomfort. The mind creates a story about that. So the assessment is friend or foe, food or poison. Um, so those are three areas that are really important to understand the function of. Now I'm going to be talking about what are called neural networks. Um, um, the first one is the anterior cingulate cortex. Now, if you think about the two hemispheres, they join at the middle, sort of like the way some people part their hair in the middle. Well, the two hemispheres come together in the middle. The anterior cingulate cortex, well, the cingulate cortex basically is the lining that is between the two hemispheres, right up there where the, that part line is, the top of the skull, on top of the brain, under the skull. Um, so the anterior cingulate cortex is right in the front. And um, it's associated with conscious awareness and a function called error detection and conflict monitoring. Now think about that. Error detection and conflict monitoring. That sounds like mindfulness and investigation of mental phenomena, doesn't it? Error detection and conflict monitoring. So that's an association with mindfulness and vipassana. The ability to investigate what is emerging in consciousness and discern whether that emerging self-state organization is wholesome or unwholesome. It's strongly associated with the amygdala, hippocampus, and another, a couple of, uh, and the nucleus accumbens, and the next item on the list, the insular cortex. Now, I'll just say this, I'll talk about it a little bit more in a few minutes. Function of the ACC, the anterior cingulate cortex, is enhanced among trained meditators. What does that mean? It means that with long-term potentiation, the more you feed those neural pathways, the more strongly connected they are. I mentioned um, um, axons and dendrites. Those are the kind of connectors between neurons and the um, connections between the neurons increase when that neuron has a stronger signal and they're more easily triggered. That's what long-term potentiation is. So when someone is a long-term meditator, the, the show of, of light, of blood, uh, you know, the radiance of the blood in the functional MRI machine uh, is much more vivid and stronger and more enduring after some, when someone experiences trait mindfulness. So um, remember that, interior cingulate cortex, error detection and conflict monitoring. Insular cortex. The insular cortex is the area of the brain that is in uh, the temple, just in front of and above each ear. 
It's the interior lining of the cerebral cortex. So it's right next to where the amygdala and hippocampus are located. They're side by side. So there's a strong connection between the insular cortex and the amygdala and the hippocampus, and there's a strong connection between the insular cortex and what's going on deeper into the body, um, the organs in the body, the limbs of the body. So um, there's similarity in the function, uh, some of the functions of the insula uh, and the ACC, and they both seem to be associated with conscious awareness, but the insular areas are associated with interoceptive awareness, awareness of internal processes, like the sensation of breathing. The insula also associates um, with higher cognitive functions. Among these functions are emotional awareness, interpersonal awareness through the function of what are called mirror neurons. Now, mirror neurons are located in different areas of the brain, but what we're talking about in this case, the insular area, is associated with mimicry. We learn through observing the behavior of others and through emotional empathy. We know that if you put an infant in a situation where she or he can witness uh, another infant in distress, that first infant will show heightened concern about that other child and maybe become upset herself or himself. That's what empathy is. So insular cortex is very much associated with compassion. The interactions between the insular cortex and the prefrontal cortex and the uh, anterior cingular cortex represents what's called a salience network, which is a major system in the brain. It's a bunch of these neural pathways that are organized to communicate with each other. Um, and it, the function of the salience network is to determine whether a neural process that is developing is important enough to pay attention to. That's what salience means. Salience basically means something that is becoming important. And so if you think back uh, what I was saying about the amygdala and the hippocampus and the ACC, um, those are all part of that along with the insular cortex and the prefrontal cortex, which I'm going to talk about next. Now, prefrontal cortex, or the PFC, is uh, one of the most interconnected areas of the brain. It's subdivided into the orbital frontal cortex, which is just above the eye sockets, the ventral medial cortex, which is just behind the orbital frontal cortex, and other neural locations in the in front of the brain. Function of these areas is to monitor and regulate emotional and cognitive processes. It's well known that when a person is chronically stressed or depressed, the right prefrontal cortex has a stronger signal strength and is therefore dysfunctional. And um, the uh, 
Conversely, when a person is not stressed and they're happy, the left prefrontal cortex is activated. Uh, there was a fellow, um, Mathieu Ricard, who was trained, a Frenchman who was trained as a, a, some kind of a biologist or some, some kind of a doctoral level of, of medical training. He decided to become a Tibetan Lama, which is a, you know, a very highly, sort of like a doctorate in, in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, he's done a lot, he's, he's a well-respected author and teacher, but uh, they tested his brain through a, a functional MRI, and he demonstrated the strongest, most persistent uh, signal in the left prefrontal cortex of any person they had ever tested. Um, and he was practicing compassion meditation at the time. Um, so, the function of the prefrontal cortex is it, it gets, it's connected into the uh, uh, anterior cingulate cortex and these other areas, the insular cortex strongly connected, but it also has connections going down into the areas where the uh, amygdala and the hippocampus and the um, nucleus accumbens operate. What can happen, there's what, what's called an up signal, which means a stimulus has activated the brain, in this case, craving and clinging. The uh, signal, that activation, goes to the orbital frontal cortex and the ventral medial cortex and neurons go from those areas down to the uh, nucleus accumbens and the amygdala and basically turn down the valve. It's called down regulation. So there's up stimulation from the senses the function of the preorbital cortex is to, uh, or excuse me, the orbital frontal cortex is to downregulate, what they call top down, and that calms us. Now, every time you direct, redirect the energy of your attention away from a distraction, from craving and clinging, back to the calmness and clarity of the sensation of breathing. What you're doing is you are creating um, long-term potentiation, strengthening the neural pathways from the orbital frontal cortex back down to the uh, what's called the limbic system, which is the um, nucleus accumbens, the amygdala, and the um, hippocampus. Very important. We know from research that the practice of Mindfulness of breathing strengthens that process. The, it lights up, like I mentioned with the research with uh, uh, Mathieu Ricard. Next one is the temporal parietal junction, TPJ. Just above and behind the ears, crease where the temporal uh, lobe and the parietal lobes join. Um, in the left hemisphere, it, it helps us understand the speech of others and the ability to infer what another person's intentions, intentions might be. 
associated with the mirror neurons. The right uh, TPJ functions to pay attention to mental processes, particularly as related to emotional empathy. So this is associated with what's called theory of mind, also called metacognition. It's the ability to um, infer what somebody else's motivations are, what they're thinking, what their expectations are, their intentions for action, and so forth and so on. We do this all the time routinely. It's part of our social dynamic. Well, we know from research that this system is enhanced in its functioning and its interconnectedness with the orbital frontal cortex and um, other regulatory areas. It's strengthened in that regard. The last one is called the default mode network. Um, it's also associated with theory of mind. Strongly connected pathways involving the temporal, parietal, prefrontal, cingulate gyrus, insular, and hippocampal regions of the brain. Involved with mind wandering, which we're all familiar with, call it monkey mind, but mind wandering is diminished among well-trained mindfulness meditators. One of the things I mentioned when you're in the training meditation is that when you're really uh, well-trained with mindfulness breathing meditation, thoughts tend to kind of fade. This is the, the raga, the dispassion part. The, um, the vividness of thoughts, the attractiveness of thoughts of any kind seem to diminish. One of the ways I describe it is like what happens when your, your computer printer starts to run out of ink. That, you know, it just gets fainter and fainter. And your thoughts are fainter and fainter. You're less and less attractive. So, um, as this process matures, it helps us to have more balance in our emotional processes and it also contributes to those last two steps in the awakening process, cessation and uh, renunciation, which I'll be talking about further in another talk. Now, I have a lot more in my notes than I... Um, can go through tonight. We're almost done, and I do want to have a chance for people to ask questions. But I want to read a quote from a book uh, about Anapanasati called Breathing Like a Buddha by Ajahn Susido, who is a Westerner. I think he's British, might be Australian, um, but he's been a meditator for many, many years. Here's a, a quote from um, a book that he wrote. I don't see the pursuit of Anapanasati as something that a beginner can fulfill without other forms of mind cultivation. It's not a matter of doggedly fixing attention on the breath. This approach can actually intensify rather than correct mental imbalances. Widely used, Anapanasati comprises one theme in a mental cultivation that should encourage ethical orientation, careful attention, goodwill, and a turning away from worldly aims and values. Guiding mental behavior in line with these themes 
one can return to in and out breathing over the years as a regular meditation practice. Certainly, cultivate spacious awareness, relax goal orientation and self-criticism, yes, of course, but the cultivation of breathing as panya within a safe and grounded embodiment offers something to come back to and work at. It will be a practice that is enriched with all the skills you cultivate. Now I put that in there because it seems like mindfulness meditation is the magic bullet, right? That's all you need to know. No, not really. It has to be combined with um, right speech, right action, and right livelihood from the Noble Eightfold Path. Basically, Anapanasati falls into the category of uh, mental discipline, particularly right mindfulness and right effort um, and right concentration. So uh, that's what he's talking about here, is to live an ethical life that is uh, imbued with um, compassion and generosity and goodwill for yourself and for other beings. But mindfulness of breathing is what enhances the capability that we have for these kinds of mind states, traits, if you will, developing these kinds of traits. So that's what I have to say. Like I just mentioned, I have a lot more here in my notes. Um, if you're interested in it, you certainly can download it and refer to it later on. Um, so now the opportunity presents itself for people to um, ask questions or make comments and they may be related to the training meditation before the talk or it may be um, a question or comment you have about something you heard me say during the talk. Anybody? All right, Allie, and then Julian. Go ahead, Allie. Sure. Um, I just wanted to say that I found it really interesting to dive into the, like, neuropsychological, um, like, functions of the brain and how it all relates to meditation. Um, it seems to kind of, like, concretize the practice and just gives a lot of insight into, um, you know, like, where craving and clinging come from and, and, and how these processes can be molded and shaped by meditation. So uh, I just, it, it really just stood out to me the like learning more in depth about how the different parts of the brain really, you know, um, relate to the practice and, and it just gives it a greater depth. So, so I appreciate all of that. Yep. Me too. Yeah. Julian. Yes. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Peter, for the um, talk and the uh, guided meditation. I just want to mention that um, during the guided meditation, it, I found helpful when you mentioned that, or you were uh, stressing this quality of uh, of the mind of being um, of of being calm. No, so like you say, like something like. This space or this spacious mind is all, all, always there, but 
it's because we are uh, training with the breathing uh, concentration and the, count, the, the, the activity of the mind is, um, is, is focused, then you or one can access this kind of spaciousness, which is always there. But um, um, so that's that's helpful to do. And, and it doesn't need to, to be like just one moment that you are aware of it. That's always uh, I feel I find like oh that's that's really um, important to, 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 to see that no like even one moment it's it's uh, it it really uh, helps for me to, to keep on engaged. Yeah, that's called insight by inference, Julian. Um, you have an experience that you've read about or heard about, and I also call it the aha moment where you realize, okay, now I understand what they're talking about. So you have that state of awareness that includes this spaciousness. It's, it's just this limitlessness. It's very open, very quiet, very peaceful. It's hard to notice because we are so conditioned to keep our minds crowded and busy. But when, you, when the mind is quiet enough and stable enough and open enough, this spaciousness, which is always there, becomes more accessible. And that's when it moves toward trait, a trait of awareness rather than a state. So, uh, and it's sort of like, you know, if you're playing a musical instrument, I've never been, never played a musical instrument, but let's say if I was playing a trumpet and... Um, I was trying to find a particular note. The teacher wanted me to find it. I saw it on the, on the notation and so forth. Couldn't get it, couldn't get it. All of a sudden, bang, you hit it. And you knew it, and your teacher knew it. Anybody else in the room knew it? Okay, that's a state. Somehow or other, the relationship of your lips and your breathing and your fingers and your hands and so forth were just right, and this beautiful sound came out. Well, then you keep practicing and keep practicing and keep practicing. After a while, you can hit that hot note on a regular basis. We call that craftsmanship or musicianship. This is really a, 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 a craft, a craft of self-awareness and um, self-regulation. And so we can develop the, those skills, but it requires a certain kind of diligence and persistence in that training to realize that benefit. I have one quick question. Yes, David. Um, you mentioned something about um, uh, like your concentration is kind of like you're, you're like a velvet, uh, a, a soft touch, almost like effortless instead of like some kind of rigid force. Mm -hmm. or, can you elaborate on that, what, how that works again? Well, if you, uh, that last quote that I read, if you try so hard with gritted teeth to pay attention to the breath, it's going to be counterproductive, right? You're going to stress and strain, and it's just going to be uncomfortable and not very effective. If you are lazy and you're in what I call cruise control, then you're not really going to get very much because the mind's going to be really susceptible to wandering. But when you... This, Figure out what the optimal pressure is. It's a kind of a leaning into. Mm -hmm. 
the, the area around the nostrils. You begin to notice characteristic sensations. They become more familiar, like that sweet note on the trumpet. Mm-hmm. Become more familiar, you know how to find your way there more and more frequently, mm-hmm. and it becomes more and more restful to be there because it's neutral, and you don't have to think to breathe, right? right? Mm-hmm. So that's the leaning in, mm-hmm. just like with the, the simile with uh, uh, velvet. If you press too hard, you're not going to feel the texture. Mm-hmm. If you don't press very hard at all, you're not going to feel the texture. Mm-hmm. But if you want to feel the texture, then you find just the right amount of pressure. Mm-hmm. And you keep your sensitivity in that area, mm-hmm. and then you'll be able to appreciate that. Great. Easier said than done. Well, but it's so remember what I said. You know, like I'm telling you about this. Mm-hmm. Sooner or later, you're going to have the aha moment and realize, oh yeah, this is what he was talking about. <laughs> right. That's great. Thank you so much. Perfect. John, I think uh, <clears throat> that is a subtle way of putting the gift of um, mindfulness meditation uh, into the benefit of stress management. Because when you're in this, uh, and Buddhist spoke about it on his deathbed about the oneness, I believe that when you get out of the way of your thoughts, and it's just stillness is another word for putting yep. to this smoothness, I, I like to call it no think. And that's mm-hmm. the stress management of consistent sitting. That's the reward that you get is this Thich Nhat Hanh called the uh, still force pond. No, it's Ajahn Chah. Okay, I thought I was thinking about No, okay. Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Chah. The point that I'm saying is that the gift from sitting, if you will consistently do it, will be this clearness, this not mm-hmm. thinking, this not beating yourself up. This uh, is just a great gift. <laughs> and uh, but like many gifts, there's some assembly required. Oh yeah, yeah. You better, it might take you several years to touch it. It might take you a month. It depends on what you're used to. But that is the gift. That yes. that is stress management. You know, that calms everything down. The pulse, mm-hmm. the, the the metabolism, everything cools down. Okay. Any other questions or comments before we uh, end tonight's meeting? So, as I mentioned earlier in the meeting, um, I'm going to dive deeper into the 16 steps or stages that are found in the uh, Anapanasati Sutta next week. That will be the, the topic. I don't think there will be a guided meditation. Possible, but I don't think so. So, as is our custom, let's sit for a moment. Thank you for your practice. I wish you well and hope we're all reasonably safe and happy until the next time we have a chance to meet.